Cryoverge podcast with Neil Litton. Neil, we've got Ramsey Homsony on the show today. For listeners not familiar with Ramsey, who is he? So I'm incredibly excited to welcome Ramsey to the show today. He is co-founder and president of Octant Bio, a company using synthetic biology to improve health and treat disease. Ramsey has a really interesting career path, having spent a bunch of time uh, building high-performance teams at technology companies. Before Octant, he was an executive at Dropbox, where he had leading roles in Dropbox's communications, public policy, legal, and other teams. Uh, during that time, Dropbox raised over a billion dollars of capital, grew to more than 500 million users, um, and achieved over a billion dollars in revenue run rate. Prior to Dropbox, Ramsey was uh, vice president at Google, where he managed the, their commercial legal groups and negotiated some of the internet's and industry's largest partnerships. So I am really excited to learn more about his personal career path into healthcare and into biotech. He doesn't have the typical resume of a drug developer. Do you think that can work as an advantage? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, we'll get into it a little bit, but he, he you know, he, he did some undergraduate work in, in chemistry and biology. So he has a, you know, obviously a foundation in, in the sciences. But, you know, approaching it from the, the tech side where he spent most of his career, as, as we know, and we talk a lot about on this show, I mean, there, there is a convergence of technology and, and biology, right, this new wave of tech bio companies. So I'm, I'm sure a lot of what he's seen in terms of, you know, building and scaling technology companies can be, a scaled, can be ascribed to what they're doing at Octin. So uh, Octin in particular has has sort of a, a four-pronged approach to using synthetic biology to develop novel small molecules. And we'll get into some of those details. But, you know, we've, we, we often talk about this idea of culture as it applies to building a tech bio company. So I think Ramsey probably has a really interesting perspective on culture, you know, coming from the tech side of the world. And I'm really interested to hear how he merges that with the biology and chemistry side of the house. Well, the company's really bringing next generation technology to small molecule drug discovery. What do you think the opportunity there is? I think there's a huge opportunity, and I think what Octin is doing is really novel, and is is what they're doing is is done at a much higher throughput and a much grander scale than what I have seen in the past. So they're using things like synthetic biology. They're using this sort of high throughput multiplex assay approach. They have a synthetic chemistry arm. They're doing a lot of computational to engineer and interrogate drugs and proteins and signaling pathways at a very large scale. So I'm really excited to talk to Ramsey about, about what they're doing and, and what they're building. Um, and, and for full disclosure, I should just mention Octane is a portfolio company of ours at BioVerge. So you know we're clearly excited about what they're doing. And I think they're taking a very different approach than what has been done historically to to doing drug development and drug discovery at a, at a very large scale. What are you hoping to hear from Ramsey today? Yeah, so as I mentioned, I'm hoping to hear a little bit about the culture that, that they have built at Octant. I'm hoping to hear about their, 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 their platform and the, both the chemistry engine and the biology engine that sort of underpin their platform. I'm interested to hear what they're doing differently than others, right? I mean, we hear a lot about sort of the, the buzziness of AI or ML, 
being applied to drug discovery or drug development. I think Austin is, is, is probably using some of that stuff, but I think they have a, a really differentiated approach, which is a lot more than, than just applying those tools. So I'm excited to dive into the inputs, the outputs that they use, um, how they think about building and scaling the company, right? Do they want to become an integrated biotech company in the future? Or is this more of a discovery engine with a, a business model to license out different products? So I think that there's obviously a lot to dive into, both from the platform and the, the scientific side, but also from, from the business fundamental side. Well, if you're all set. I'm all set. Let's do it, Danny. Ramsey, a big thank you for joining us. I am incredibly excited to welcome you to the show today. Sure thing, Neil. I'm excited to be here. Well, today we are going to talk about Octant Bio and how you're charting new approaches in the world of synthetic biology and drug discovery by engineering biology at unprecedented scale to unlock the development of novel small molecule therapeutics. One of the themes we like to look at on this show is the convergence of tech and biotech or biology or the emergence of tech bio. Octant certainly fits within this theme. Before we dive into some of the details in regards to what you're building at Octant, I would like to start with your personal journey to, be, to become co-founder of Octant because your journey is really fascinating to me. You have an undergraduate degree in chemical and biochemical engineering. You're a lawyer by training. You've gone from being a technology attorney at Wilson Sonsini to being VP at Google and an executive at Dropbox. How did you go from those experiences to being a co-founder and president of a drug development company? Yeah, the short answer is a very short attention span. <laughs> um, but more seriously, I've always been really interested in technology. I was a math and science kid growing up. My parents, you know, were immigrants. And um, I've, I found myself in that situation. Many immigrant kids do where you're really just... Uh, push really hard on the math and science of things because that's, that's the thing your parents really value. Um, I, so I went to engineering school uh, and then weird stuff started happening in my career. I sort of started doing some irrational things. Like I went to law school having no idea what I was getting myself into uh, just after an engineering ethics class. It, it felt like it was important for people who are really passionate about technology to be more involved in law and society. And after that, I really missed technology. So I came out to California to work with technology firms and um, had an amazing few years at Wilson Sonsini. I actually spent most of my time working with biotech and medical device companies. But in 2003, I, uh, my attention was captured by this, at the time, a uh, very quickly growing company called Google. Uh, just started reading about the company and was just blown away at how they were really rethinking so many things from first principles. And it really captured my imagination as to what was going to happen in the next 10 years with what was happening in software and the internet. And so I left uh, my bio background behind and went and joined Google, had an amazing time there. That time continued with Dropbox. And, um, you know, there I went to more working on, the virtualization of information, seeing the growth of the cloud. Again, this thesis that this was going to change everything. Um, and towards the end of that, I started to feel that way about biology again. I, I was keeping track of what was happening in biology. It, it just really was blowing me away. This idea that you, we were seeing at scale people starting to really read, write, edit genetic code. We were accessing the information systems 
of life, basically. I know that sounds so hyperbolic, but it's really what it is. And I'd known my co-founder, Sri, for a while. He was a well-known synthetic biologist, and I just started calling him just out of excitement, asking him questions, asking him to introduce me to people in the space. And it was over the course of those conversations that we both got very excited about some of the work coming out of his lab, and we decided it was important for us to stop what we were doing and build a company around some of those technologies. It's very cool. I mean, so it's almost like you 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 sort of find a technology trend that excites you and, and sort of follow that to you know the the next big thing. I, I've I've got to ask how how have you found the transition from large tech companies to building a startup like Octant? Yeah. Um... So it's funny, when I joined both of those tech companies, they weren't large. So Google was about 1,000 people. When I left, it was 25,000. And Dropbox was about 50 people when I joined. When I, was left, when I left, it was about 2,500. Seeing that evolution is really fascinating. You really struggle with questions that I think are similar to what biotech companies struggle with. So, you know, science and technology is what drives your value. How do you build your people and your talent around that? How do you build companies that attract the best talent, develop the talent? How do you build cultures that make very good technical decisions? And then how do you build the non-R&D part of the company or the non-technical part of the company to also be excellent? Those are all things that I think are very similar in both worlds. Um, I think there are a bunch of differences. Uh, One of those differences, I feel like it's starting to converge a little bit. So I think Things in biology and chemistry are very are, are changing a lot. Uh, we are seeing more characteristics of those sciences as information sciences. People are starting to do these massive experiments, build huge experimental data sets. I'm not talking just about AI and machine learning. I know that sort of it's very trendy to talk about those things, I think, for a lot of good reasons. But it's also this idea of just doing these massive types of experiments that we do at Octon, for example, that are just changing the way you can really get into very fast design, build, test cycles, start to treat some of these technology areas as engineering problems. And then there are some things that are just very different. So, you know, biotech, biology is not software. It is just not. Uh, code is deterministic for the most part. A bug in your software is the same bug today and tomorrow. Your cells act differently from day to day. You don't know why. Um, biology is just still orders of magnitude more complicated and complex than what we think of as sort of software technology. And, and, and you have to respect that. I think you can't run a biotech complete company completely like a software company. It has a lot of implications for your strategy. In tech, you can wander a lot more. You can iterate in the short term. You can build something and launch it next week. In biology, you're, you know, in drug discovery anyway, you're trying to hit clinical endpoints that are 10 years away. You have to build back from those plans. It's, it's just very different in those ways. The cost models are different too, which, you know, that's less interesting, but we could get into that if you'd like. Um, and so I think the... What's really hard is doing both in the same company that it's been fun. It's been challenging, but um, you know, there's a lot of excitement, as you said about this idea of this category of companies. Some people call it tech bio. Uh, It's, it's not, you know, it's really hard. How do you build a culture that uh, promotes both this iterative wandering that you want to see on the software side, but also this this very careful de-risking over time that you need to, to run a good drug discovery program how do you how do you build a company that's good at sort of messing around with things and and 
harvesting that innovation, but also really smart about indication selection because you could spend all your time working on the wrong thing and squander a lot of investors' money doing that. Um, those are definitely a lot of the challenges we deal with every day. Yeah, I mean, Ramsey, there are so, so many gems to dig into there. And, and, you know, I'm always fascinated, you know, with the idea of culture and because it does play such an important role, but I think is, is often overlooked. So I, I really appreciate your perspective on striking that balance between sort of the, the tech culture and the biotech culture, because I think that that is really incredibly important as you're looking to scale the, the business. Um, let, let's jump into what Octin is doing. So you're using synthetic biology to do high throughput screening and a very computational heavy approach to drug discovery. Can you can you walk me through Octin's drug discovery approach and, and maybe how it's different from traditional drug discovery efforts? Sure. So our basic thesis is that there are a lot of very important unsolved problems in medicine that are characterized by their multifactorial nature. What do I mean by that? Um, often it's how do you drug some cellular mechanism that requires modulating multiple receptors or pathways, or in the case of monogenic diseases, building drugs that can act on many of the different possible mutations that a patient might have to that one gene? These are problems that historically drug discovery aren't really optimized for. Drug discovery historically has been the secular trend towards very specific, like highly specific targeting of a single target, right? And what we're doing is building a next, what we think of as a next generation drug discovery platform to solve these types of multifactorial problems. So we're rationally building small molecules that target multiple target pathways or mutations, um, you know, things like uh, polypharmacology, functional selectivity of receptors. And we think it's really the sort of like the best of both worlds between classic modes of phenotypic screening and rational drug design. Um, Many of society's best drugs, which were found largely by accident, hit dozens of targets. There aren't tremendously rational ways to deal with that. And we want to build those tools. We want to use them to solve some of those problems. Um, in monogenic disease, you know, there are lots of diseases that share the same fundal, fundamental cellular mechanism of dysfunction. So in the ones we work on, that's protein misfolding. Everybody knows about vertex vertex's cystic fibrosis franchise. The thing about that franchise is that because of a founder effect, 85 plus percent of the patients all have the same uh, variant of the gene. What about all the other diseases that where the, the burden spread out across many more mutations in the gene? If you could actually deal with that in parallel, you could convert a lot of monogenic diseases to, to look more commercially attractive and, and solvable um, the way Vertex has done with cystic fibrosis. So those are the types of uh, problems we work on. The targets are very well defined genomically, but we, we need new ways to actually both deconvolve those targets so we know what we're trying to hit. And then we need chemistries that can actually alter molecules so that you can, in a systematic and rational way, really dial in on the target profile you're trying to hit. I Sometimes I describe this as trying to play chords rather than notes. Um, it's, it's really hard, but the tools are finally here to do that. And we just, you know, there's a lot of companies out there using synthetic biology tools on modality. We think there's also a big opportunity to use synthetic biology tools to tackle these sorts of problems as well with a more traditional modality like small molecules. 
And, and Ramsey, you, you mentioned sort of the, the, the chemistry. You, know, you also have a biology engine. I, I want to get into that in a minute, but I want to actually go back to something you referenced earlier in terms of, you know, using things like AI and, and machine learning. You know, it, if I understand correctly, you're, you're taking an approach that is to some extent an alternative to using AI and, and ML to run simulations. What, what do you see as the limit of, of those approaches today? I think it's a matter of timing. Uh, there's a lot of promise for AI and drug discovery, particularly in areas where there are well-constrained models. So, for example, a structure problem constrained by a physics-based model, AI can go to town on that. But there are a lot of areas of biology that just are not like that and won't be anytime soon. They're just much more messy and complex, still much more unconstrained. There's not a lot of well-controlled data in those areas. And so, you know, we don't, we're not, we use machine learning, we use very advanced computational methods, but we also don't think that's sort of the panacea to drug discovery writ large. Um, and, you know, I think most people would agree with that. I don't think that's super controversial. So we have this approach we call cellular intelligence. And this is the idea that cells are these astonishingly intricate, sort of all you can think of them almost as like cities of complexity, right? Um, what would you do if you really wanted to understand all these interconnected information flows in a city or a cell? You wouldn't write a piece of AI to try to simulate the cell. I don't, I don't think you'd do that in the next 10 years anyway, especially not when the cell's already doing all that work for you. Why not use all these synthetic biology tools to actually engineer the cells to tell us what's happening inside them? And that's what we do. We really use the biology to sort of decode itself um, and so for, I'll give you an example. Let's say you wanted to know the functional effect of every possible mutation of a protein. So if this protein was roughly 400 amino acids long. You wanted to understand every single point amino acid mutation of the protein. That would be about 8,000 different variants. So you could go on an AI journey and try to create some sort of classifier or model to understand what each of those different mutations, how they'll behave differently. Or you can do what we do, which is engineer a different living human cell line with every one of those possible mutations in a living cell model and perturb it. And that's what we do. Uh, so in an experiment like that, you have this, you know, 400 amino acids times e either 24 amino acid possibilities, or we actually, we do it by codons. So you can do all 64 codons and then two pathways and then 10 barcodes per cell line. Now you're talking about roughly half a million cells, different uniquely barcoded cell lines. 10 years ago, people would have laughed at that, right? Like no one would have thought that that was a possible experiment. We do that kind of work here. We, we build those cell lines, we test them, we validate them, and we generate these very large data sets that um, empirically tell us what's happening in, in these cellular mechanisms. And Ramsey, that's so that's so cool. And and you know, in my opening, I mentioned that you're doing things at unprecedented scale. And you know, to that point, that I, that's exactly what we were just talking about. I mean, the ability to do you know all those experiments in those cell lines. I think I haven't heard of that type of throughput before. So that that's that's really cool. Um, you mentioned one thing that I want to pick up on and ask you about, which is this idea of um, the barcode. So you have these multiplex barcoded assays that you use. Can, can you describe what, what that means and what that is? Yeah. So as you know, in, in vitro screening, uh, sort of 
some common screening assays that people use in biopharma are in vitro screening assays. Uh, people also use luciferous reporter assays w- when you want to measure cellular activity. Um, and that in those assays, you're looking for binding or you're looking for luminescence. We basically build versions of those assays that instead of reading out with a luminescent protein, you're reading out with a barcode. So a barcode is just some a string of RNA, a randomized string of RNA. In our case, we're usually using about 20 base pairs long where we've recorded and we keep track of which cell and which reporter pathway has which barcode. And when that reporter is activated, the, the, one of the downstream consequences of activating that reporter is to print out this barcode. And then we can use very cheap next generation sequencing to actually count those barcodes as a proxy for cellular activity. So we're engineering reporters to report out on biological activities like signaling function, protein abundance, protein trafficking, and then we're screening compounds against those assays. One of the things that's very powerful about that is you can build many different reporters and you can put them all in the same well or all in the same dish, and you can produce these exquisitely controlled multiplex data sets so that you can measure lots of different things at the same time. And it not only increases your throughput, but it also uh, creates sort of differential measurements. So you can, you can very quickly deconvolve things that haunt traditional assays. So for example, if you're testing a compound that is toxic to cells, if you're doing that one reporter at a time, you see the reporter report activity. In our assay, we'll see all the barcodes report activity. So we know that whatever is happening is not specific to one of the pathways or one of the targets we care about, something that's happening to the background of the cell line. It just helps us get answers much more quickly, filter out noise, in addition to actually helping us deconvolve what's happening inside the cells. And you've got both a biology engine and a chemistry engine at work here. You just described a little bit of, of both of those, but can you break that down for us and, and, and I guess really in particular how they interrelate? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, I just covered the biology a little bit. That's our cellular intelligence engine. We really use that to chart biological mechanism, both to understand what is a complex target of a, a biological process we want to target, and then We've built all the reporters and all the cell lines to figure that out. And now we can use all that technology as the actual assay infrastructure we're going to assay against. So then the next question is, okay, great. So now you have a target fingerprint. Like, what are you going to do about it? How do you actually build a drug against that complicated fingerprint? And so we've built this um, nanoscale chemistry synthesis engine. We call it high-throughput SAR, where we're actually uh, using these next generation technologies like acoustic microfluidics and uh, fragment-based drug discovery. Actually, some of these technologies aren't super new, but we're using them in new ways. And what it allows us to do is build lots of new chemical entities in a very rational and systematic way, right? So this isn't, we're not building random chemical space. This isn't like a Dell strategy, which, you know, Dell strategies are great. I think they're just useful for, for something else. What we're doing is we're taking a molecule we know has some interesting activity. Maybe it's not potent enough. Maybe there's a little activity there. And we're, we're breaking that molecule up into cores. And then we're using reactive chemistries to um, iterate on that cores with fragment library. So in a typical sort of hit to lead campaign, instead of, uh, having a few medicinal chemists build a couple hundred analogs for you, our 
our synthetic chemistry engine builds hundreds of thousands of analogs and you just generate a lot more data and you really like saturate the local chemical space to get a much better sense for what does each potential variation of the molecule, how does that interact with the cellular intelligence part of the engine? It's really that, that intersection that matters a lot because we know that in some of these disease areas, very, very small changes to the molecules can have profound phenotypic changes. And so this is a very systematic way to churn through that space and build uh, molecules that, that are going after those newer, nuanced fingerprints. So for an example, in one of our programs, uh, our furthest along program, it's, it's a program in autosomal dominant retinitis pigmentosa, we now have some really exciting leads that are more potent than the than uh, compounds reported in the literature. They have great bioavailability. They're, they have great blood retinal permeability. And those molecules are, um, are very different than the molecules we started with. In fact, um, if, you, if you were to show those molecules to a chemist, I think most chemists would say like, hey, those are not similar molecules. But our, our high throughput chemistry enables us to sort of scaffold jump in very non-intuitive ways to get there. A lot of that work is guided by and in concert with medicinal chemists. So it's not like a robot doing everything, but it, 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 through this hyper experimentation, you, you generate much larger data sets to, to push the process along much faster. And with more quality, it's not just about speed. You also are able to dial molecules in on these complex profiles where you need to hit these, these are in, in, the rhodopsin program, for example, there's about 40 different variants of that uh, gene that we'd like to target. And so how do you run a drug program where you're trying to target 40 different targets at the same time and optimize on permeability and optimize on bioavailability? I think it's pretty much impossible to do that using traditional drug discovery tools. It really requires this kind of multiplexed parallelization of, of all those things at the same time. Um, so that you can filter out a lot of the noise along the way and try to quickly get to interesting lead compounds. And Rams, I, I want to talk about some of your um, pipeline candidates here in a minute, but how how scalable is this approach that you've developed across therapeutic areas or across various indications? Oh, that's a great question. I think there's so many different ways to measure scale. I'll Maybe I'll talk about a few that I think about. One of the factors of scale is that we really focus on cellular mechanism. So as I was saying before, this, you know, ADRP, autosomal dominant retinitis pigmentosa, is a disease of protein misfolding. So basically, there's a mutation in the protein where the protein's not getting to where it's supposed to go in the cell. That could cause problems in different ways. It could be because the protein is not functioning, getting to where it needs to go and functioning properly. But actually in that disease, a lot of the burden is caused by the protein just jamming up the cell. And that's a common problem in a number of other monogenic diseases. It's actually a problem in, in more common diseases as well. But I think the most famous one is cystic fibrosis, where that's a misfolding disease and Vertex showed you could build a small molecule chaperone against it. It's just that um, there, as I said before, you most of the patients had the same variant. So it was a lot easier to target just one variant to start with. So when you talk about scale, well, what if we could make a bunch of different rare disease look more like cystic fibrosis? We've been able to do that here. The, um, the ADRP program, that took us about a year and a half to get off the ground. We built all those reporter constructs, all those gene circuits. 
we adapted them to another rare disease of misfolding in under two months. And so we now, so you have the scale of what I think of a scale of cellular mechanism where you have this repeatable toolkit you can use in other similar diseases. There's other types of scale. So for example, um, our, the scale of our chemistry. So as I mentioned in our ADRP program, in the hit to lead part of the program, we went through about 250,000 different new um, chemical constructs or new chemical entities. Now that doesn't sound like a large number to, you know, a biopharma company that, you know, has chemical libraries of millions, but I'm not talking about hit finding. I'm talking about the, you know, hit to lead that that's a lot of analogs to be building in a hit to lead campaign. Um, And then there's the scale of biology. We're just very good at building reporter constructs. We've now uh, run experiments with over a million unique cell lines in them. We're able to build these really exquisite reporters really quickly using these pooled synthetic biology approaches and every time we build one of those reporters, it sort of enters our library and we can use it um, going forward. So a lot of our counter screens, for example, in our misfolding assays are um, the sort of the primary screens for the other program, right? So if you want to know, hey, is this drug actually selective to my target or is it just greasing up the ER and causing everything to get through? Well, we put a bunch of our other cell lines in that assay because then we'll get to see whether the drug is being selective to um, the program we're currently working on or whether it's just doing something in the, in the background of the cell. So there's lots of different ways to look at the scale. Uh, those are a few of the ways I think about it. Yeah, that, that's super helpful. So th- this is actually probably the, the perfect transition to talk about your, your business model. So, so you have sort of this drug discovery engine. Um, do, you, do you plan to move those candidates through clinical trials on your own? Do you plan to move those into partnerships and have others develop those candidates you know, through clinical trials? How do you, how do you think about sort of the, the future of Octant kind of moving forward? Yeah, this is uh, one of the hard problems of platform biotech. And I, and I would, I'll bet you if you asked me this question a year and a half ago before the markets started to collapse, I'd answer it pretty differently, <laughs> just to be completely honest. Uh, you know, our advantages are clearly on the discovery engine and the early discovery side. That's where we drive most of our value today. We can build really high quality small molecule leads for difficult problems very quickly in a very genomically validated way, very cellular, you know, mechanism driven. That being said, one of the things that's great about our platform is it's applicable in many different places. We're working on a cluster of rare diseases. We've done a a lot of work in very interesting Um, You know, in GPCRs, which are an incredibly rich target space, we're working in kinases, BMS. So we have this luxury of of being able to be choosy about what we work on. And so we don't invest in programs unless we feel they would be attractive candidates to take into the clinic ourselves. That's sort of our threshold. Could this program be a lead program for us? If not, we don't really want to work on it. Um, Now, that doesn't mean we're going to take all of them into the clinic ourselves, like just realistically some of them aren't going to make it. And if there are opportunities along the way to um, do good deals where we learn from a partner, we get to diversify some of our risk, we get to leverage the platform more, we'll do that. Uh, but we do hope to one day be a commercial drug discovery company. And we do, we, our primary lens through which we see that is building our own pipeline over time. We obviously are also open and active in business development and 
always very excited to meet with partners who we think we would work well together with. And, and I want to talk about one of the partnerships that you do have, but I just want to ask you a follow-up question. In terms of your pipeline and sort of thinking about the future, right, I think there, there's a couple ways to think about, you know, building value for, you know, a, a platform drug discovery company. You know, one is, is to really concentrate on, on the platform and spitting out a bunch of molecules, moving those forward and, you know, rinse and repeat, and the other, which is more of the tried and true biotech playbook, is you find one molecule, put all your effort into that molecule and deriving value from moving that through clinical trials. How, how, how do you think about those two as you're thinking about sort of building value for the, for the platform? Yeah, I've, unfortunately, I don't think there are easy answers here. Um, it's something we've definitely struggled with a lot. I think one of, one of our added challenges is, you know, we do, our platform is, really well suited for some disease areas where you you have to go a little bit into the clinic to to prove value and so this is something we think a lot about and we try to calibrate carefully so we definitely want to be a multi-program company we're not doing the sort of um just one put all our wood behind one arrow but we also on the other hand it's also not enough to just spit out a bunch of molecules, claim they're in lead optimization and hope to get value for them. I think we do have to show and validate that our technology is producing quality drug candidates. And, you know, that's a hard bar. Uh, A lot of, a lot of, we've been through this past two or three years of just this massive biotech, uh, exuberance and there's a lot of companies out there making a lot of claims about a lot of things and at the end we in the end we all have to show up with our data and show that yeah we're actually this platform first of all it actually is the platform that's building these drugs it's not some drug and we have a platform next to it and and second there's real quality here and we're we're generating something that has is unique and and i don't i think it's very hard to do that if you're just if you don't at least have some proofs of concept that you take um, pretty far yourself. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree, and I think a lot of a lot of these questions are are questions that a lot of you know tech bio companies struggle struggle with, right? And as you're building a platform, you need to validate the platform through a you know through a case study or you know through clinical data. So yeah, I think these are these are big sort of questions for our industry in general. Um, Ramsey, I, I want to circle back to um, a collaboration that you have uh, with uh, BMS, Bristol Myers, that you announced at the time of your Series B financing, which is uh, focused around a set of uh, inflammatory related pathways. Can you talk a little bit about that collaboration and the goals? Uh, I, I'll try to say what I can. Obviously, we uh, there's a bunch of confidentiality around that agreement. Um, you know, we're just really excited to be working with BMS. I think they're, they're really one of the companies that we think get it. They, they really understand and are forward thinking about the role of genomics and drug discovery and in drug development. And so we had been talking to them for a little while in conversations that were, um, put together through, through one of our, or our primary lead investor in our series A and then a big investor in our series B, Andreessen Horowitz. And 
they're very excited about our our deep mutagenic scan technology. We're excited about it too. This is that technology I was talking about earlier where you take a target you really care about, you know, is interesting, and you build every possible single uh, amino acid mutation to that target. And then you can you can barcode the different downstream pathways of every variant of that target, and you can start running uh, both drugs, tool compounds, endogenous ligands, small molecules, peptides, et cetera, against that target. And you can start to learn a lot about the target. You can, it basically becomes a proxy for SAR in some ways. It also can, you can use the data with um, like GWAS data to better understand what the function of that target in the human population is. So there, you know, the BMS team is really a, a leading force in this area. And we're partnering with them to work on one of their um, immune programs and doing some of this DMS work. And it's, it's really exciting. We're, uh, I, th- I think, and um, trying to be humble as I say this, I-, I think we are the best team in the world to do these deep mutagenic scans. And I'm super excited about what they're going to mean for the future of medicine. And our first foray into that is this partnership with BMS. Um, after that, they approached us after we had signed the deal. Their scientists were just really excited about the technology, and they asked if we, if they could, if we were investing anytime soon, and if they could invest in the next round. And so they also participated in our Series B as a separate standalone uh, engagement, and that that was the greatest flattery for us. Just the idea that they were impressed enough that they also wanted to be invested in the company that was really exciting. Yeah, I mean that that's obviously a huge road of confidence. Um, you had mentioned a little bit about, you know, interest in, in other types of, you know, BD partnerships going forward. You know, I'll, I'll just ask about that, probably a hazard of a lot of the time I spent in, in my career doing business development. But what, what are the types of things that you're looking for in, in, a, in a partner? What, you know, what, what, are, what, what, what would attract you to a, you know, potential partner in the future? Sure. So I, I think we just have these very unique abilities to iterate on these hard problems. So this could be um, applying the DMS t- technology to uh, either genomically risk targets or to de-risk targets, sorry, or to work on a target someone already really cares about to really better understand that target. For, so for example, you can use the technology to look for allosteric binding sites on the target. And all of this is not by measuring binding activity. It's by measuring functional activation of the downstream pathways of the target. So you really can really understand the target better by doing that. Um, We also are very open to sort of drug discovery, more more common drug discovery partnerships. So for example, a lot of times you have interesting chemical matter and you get stuck because you've shown some level of potency or you've shown something interesting that the target is doing. You've tried to build a bunch of analogs to that target and you're just getting stuck with where that's going. Our platform is a really great platform to build living human cell models for the activities you're trying to modulate and then go in and really just explode the space around that chemical matter and thoroughly test it so that you can get a much better idea of what potential opportunities in your existing chemical space might be. Um, The other area I would say is in GPCRs, we really have some cutting edge ability to build genetic reporters for GPCR pathways you know, the various different downstream pathways that GPCRs act through. So if you're a company that 
really cares about GPCRs and, and is working in that space, we can do some really interesting things, both finding hits against those targets, but maybe even more importantly, optimizing polypharmacology and bias against those target classes. We know that a lot of the most valuable uh, drug areas over the course of human history have been GPCR targeted areas. And we know those targets are extremely, the, the drugs in those areas are extremely promiscuous. A lot of them were discovered by mistake. We think it's this massive, exciting opportunity for the future to be more rational about how we develop drugs in that space. That's been really hard for a long time. And we're excited to work with partners who have biological expertise or existing chemical matter that they want to further optimize in, in this new kind of way to solve some of those problems. And and these are these are hard problems to solve. And it sounds like you you have obviously developed a you know a pretty powerful platform to to try to overcome some of these challenges. So R- Ramsey, you know, you and I could probably talk for another couple of days about some of these topics. I do want to be cognizant of your time and ask you one final question. And that is, what is your vision for the future and where do you see Octin in let's say the next five years or so? Oh, it's so hard to think five years ahead. Uh, you know, Sri and I, when we joined this company or when we started this company, um, funny, I think of it as joining because I, I feel like we joined a movement. Um, we both left behind very successful careers. You know, Sri was a tenured professor at UCLA. Uh, I had built you know, a pretty good career in tech, but we both deeply believe that these new technologies are just going to change the future of medicine in a lot of ways and that someone needed to take these bets. Someone needed to um, apply these synthetic biology tools and now these high throughput synthetic chemistry tools in concert with automation. We didn't even talk about our automation today and our computational approaches to just crack some of these hard problems. They're problems that are extremely important to society. They're huge disease burdens, areas we're not making enough progress in. And in five years, um, you know, I hope that we have multiple candidates in the clinic in different therapeutic areas. I hope we've developed the platform both in its capability and its scale. That's been going really well. It's been really exciting to add new chemistries to the platform, add new biological capabilities to the platform, but also to just increase the scale. So about a year ago, we could run one to one and a half programs at a time on the platform. Now we can run know, six or seven programs at a time on the platform. There's, there's really no ceiling to that over time. And that we're generating progress in a bunch of disease areas that, that portends hope for patients. I think that's the ultimate goal. One of the things Sri and I have been clear about in building this company is that we're trying to take the bets that we think other people aren't taking and that society really needs to take. We're less interested in being in crowded spaces where there's lots of other bets I think this is something we learned during COVID is there are times when society just needs you to do that thing that could make a difference, but if you don't do it, nobody else is going to, and we really target the company to those things. So five years from now, hopefully we're doing this again, and we have multiple candidates in the clinic, and we're well on our way to really being a full-stack biopharma company. And Ramsey, I, for one, am uh, extremely grateful that you and Sri decided to take the plunge and, and, and build Octant because I think there's a huge need for it. And there, there's so much potential with what, uh, with what the company is building. So certainly applaud your efforts there. So with that, Ramsey, I want to say a big thank you for joining me on the show today and your time today. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. I really enjoy the podcast. Thanks for having me on. 
Well, Neil, what did you think? I thought that was a really great discussion with Ramsey. I mean, a, you know, a wide-ranging conversation. And, you know, I loved loved his perspective on on the culture and sort of merging, the, you know, the biology and the chemistry and the technology culture. Um, so, I, you know, he, obviously, given his background at places like Google and Dropbox, I mean, he, he comes from sort of the, the large tech company side. But you heard him say when he joined those companies, they were much smaller. So he has that perspective, what it takes to build and scale a hugely valuable technology business. And they're merging that with the, the scientific, you know, biology, biotech part of the equation. So that was really interesting. And then I love the sort of nuanced discussion around the platform that they developed, right? There, there's a lot of pretty complex technology that goes into, you know, their platform and what they're building. And you heard them talk a little bit about, you know, what they call cellular intelligence and how they integrate this sort of, you know, barcode assay uh, and what that means. And I, you know, those are just really cool approaches to drug discovery and drug development that I, I you know, to my knowledge, no other folks are doing. He certainly seems to understand that tech and biotech are different beasts. But in the case of Octant, like other tech bios, you need to be a little bit of both, as he said. How difficult is finding that balance? Oh, I think it's extremely difficult. And, and you heard Ramsey say as much, right? I mean, th th there is a balance between the, the tech and the biotech aspect. And there's a balance between you know, building the platform and the drug discovery engine, right? And building a pipeline of small molecule candidates and then actually validating those candidates with meaningful POC data, with clinical data. And so there's that balance as well. So I think there, there's a lot of challenges and these challenges are not unique to Octant per se, right? I mean, I think these are challenges that our industry and tech bio companies face as a whole, um, but you heard Ramsey's approach to de-risking some of what they're doing. Uh, and I, and I, you know, I think that's the right approach, right? I mean, you, you need the, the engine, you need to be able to rinse and repeat, so to speak, but you also need to validate those, those molecules, right? Those candidates with some preclinical proof of concept, some clinical proof of concept. Um, and that all helps validate the platform. So, you know, there's a whole host of challenges here, but, you know, I think they're approaching it the right way. Octon has uh, an agreement with BMS. Uh, they've become investors in the company, which is search, certainly validating. The challenge for companies with powerful discovery engines, though, is getting value for what they do. You talked a little bit about this with them, but in terms of building that value, can they partner their way there, or are they going to really have to become drug developers who carry their molecules to the market? Yeah, it's, 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 you know, that's the billion dollar question, Danny. Um, and I don't think there is one right answer. I think there's a, a, a multitude of ways that you can create massive amounts of value in this industry, right? The traditional biotech playbook is to become an integrated biotech company, develop your own candidate or candidates and move that through clinical trials to demonstrate value with a single asset or a couple assets, right? There's no question that acquires pay, you know, massive you know, billions of dollars for, you know, single assets. Um, now, that's not the only way to do it. I think what a lot of the tech bio companies are doing these days are building these, you know, massively scalable platforms where they could likely spit out a bunch of candidates. And whether they want to move those for themselves or they want to partner those, I think we're going to see a lot of new models emerge where the platform itself creates a ton of value and, 
tech bio companies can be valued for the platform and not necessarily for an asset that they happen to be developing. So if you think about well, the partner and business model, you know, there could be some future state where Octon is, is developing a bunch of candidates, taking them through, I'm just making this up, but you know, preclinical proof of concept and then partnering them off. And they do that in sort of a higher throughput fashion. And so they have, you know, a whole bunch of molecules that they have some, you know, milestones on or royalties on in the future. And maybe that's a business model. Maybe that's how they're creating massive value. I don't, I'm not sure which way they're going to go necessarily, but you heard Ramsey, you know, state the, you know, his opinion about a few different ways they could capture a ton of value. Well, until next time. All right. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for listening. The BioVerge podcast is a product of BioVerge Inc., an investment platform that funds visionary entrepreneurs with the aim of transforming healthcare. BioVerge provides access and enables everyone to invest in highly vetted healthcare startups on the cutting edge of innovation. From family offices and registered investment advisors to accredited and non-accredited individuals. To learn more, go to bioverge.com. This podcast is produced for BioVerge by the Levine Media Group. Music for this podcast is provided courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective. All opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinion of BioVerge Inc. or its affiliates. The participants' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither BioVerge or its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied on as such. Nothing contained in accompanying this podcast shall be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to purchase any security by BioVerge, its portfolio companies, or any third party. Past performance is not indicative of future results.